We're going to be at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 today. And uh, just, a, just a little context here. The Corinthians were divided, remember? And there's this whole section of church matters is about unity, right? This section of Corinthians is about unity. And division was coming in because the world, wisdom of the world was creeping in and mixing in with the message of the gospel. And so they started, they were divided over certain philosophies, certain oratory style or, or, or rhetoric. They're losing the essence of what the gospel is all about. And so today what we're talking about, the sermon's title is The Work of the Spirit. Or the Holy Spirit, right? There's that wave. And so the work of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit unifies the church by giving us the same mind, one mind, one purpose, which unifies us. And so as we're reading here at 1 Corinthians 2, let's keep this in mind. Whenever we read the Bible, the Bible is revelation or tells us who God is. So as we're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 2 today and, and you hear the word of God preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let's remember this. We're trying to seek the Lord by helping us to understand, God, who are you? And the Bible is the only reliable source of knowing who God is. So this is why we rise up to honor God when we read the scripture. So if you're able to, please rise where we're at. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. This is God's word. Paul writes, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith will not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Finishing up here. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.
Help us to uh, understand your word, Lord. I pray that your spirit will inspire the preaching today. And I pray your spirit will illuminate our hearts to know your son more so that we will love him more. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a seat, please. 2020, we've been talking about this is the year of spiritual clarity and having sp good spiritual vision. Clarity of spiritual vision. 2020. 2020 feels like something big is about to happen. I mean, we, we've been talking about the coronavirus for seven months now. Our mountains are on fire. There's incredible division, racial tension everywhere. We have explosive uh, election coming up here in a, in a few weeks. It feels like something big is about to happen, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know. I just, that's just how I feel. Either the end of the world is coming soon. For sure, we're nearing it. You know, every day that goes by, we're getting closer to the return of Christ. Or perhaps maybe a great revival or awakening is about to happen. Right? And I've been thinking and praying this for our church, for the San Gabriel Valley, a revival where many women, many men will come to love Christ, get on fire for Christ Jesus. This is why we exist on this side of eternity. This is what we want to see. And I love history because it, it kind of tells us perhaps the things to look for. And so I asked myself, you know, what is the common denominator with all great revivals of the past? What do they all have in common? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a preacher from the, from the last century, says this, what is it that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or of a revival? He writes, it is renewed preaching. Not only a new interest in preaching, but a new kind of preaching. A revival of the preaching, of, of true preaching, has always heralded these great movements in the history of the church. Preaching. A new type of preaching he talks about. He would reference the birth of the church by Peter and Paul in Acts. Spirit-filled preaching of the word. He would also reference the Protestant Reformation from the 1500s. He'd cite men like Luther, Calvin, Knox, Latimer, Ridley. Great preachers who sola scripturas, preaching the word. They were, they were committed men who would preach the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Great Awakening, men like Edwards, Whitfield, the Wesleys, preaching the Bible, preaching the Word, the revival. So right here, Paul perhaps is looking for a revival in Corinth. Although they were birthed and they were a true church, there was a lot of division, a lot of confusion going on. They weren't moving forward. So we will move to our first point. First point is this. The preacher of God is weak and fearful. So if you're taking your notes on, your, on the app, it's a phenomenal a tool that we've been able to provide. The outline is there. You're able to type it in you know, onto your device and email it to yourself. So you've got good ongoing notes. It's, like I said, at the end of our first Corinthians series, you should be able to preach and teach Corinthians. And as you have some great notes here. So the preacher of God is weak and fearful. 
Verse 3 says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. All right, this is Paul saying, I was with you in weakness. And when I, when I think of Paul, I don't think of weak. weak. I mean, this man was amazing. He was bold. He'd get beat up and say, don't preach him, or he'd come back to the same city and start preaching again. He was the man that God used to take the gospel to the unknown world, to the known world. He was the first to bring the gospel into Europe, and the gospel spread. He, God used him to write 13 books in the New Testament. Paul had incredible brain power. I mean, this guy was brilliant. I don't think of him as weak. So what does he mean he came to the Corinthians in weakness and in fear and much trembling? Keep in mind, as he did some research here, he was on a second missionary journey. And he had these stops along the way before he got to Corinth. All right, So his Corinthian stop for 18 months was on a second missionary journey. Well, the second missionary journey didn't start off well. They're launched out of Jerusalem. And there's already division on his team. There's a division over, should we bring John Mark or not? And through that division, it became two. The team was split up right from the beginning, those trials. And then he gets to Philippi. You know, he crosses the water, goes to Philippi in Macedonia, which is in Greece. (coughs) And right there he preaches, and, and the first converts in Europe are birthed. But then what happens is they illegally drag him, they beat him up, he was a Roman citizen, and they illegally arrest him. Trials. And then finally they release him. Then he goes down, down to Thessalonica. And his own countrymen, Jews, come and stir up the crowd, and there's a riot that's formed against them. And then here he is. He ends up in Athens, the intellectual capital of the world, and he's basically debating with these Athenians, and they, they're the smart guys. They have all the worldly wisdom. And I really believe Paul could have matched wits with them. He had the brain power, the, the, the intellect, the education to match wits with them. But he didn't do that. He just went, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to explain who Jesus Christ is. And guess what happens? These intellects mock him because that's foolishness. That's absurd. Who would believe in a dead, crucified Jew? Right? And so that's the kind of this mindset that perhaps Paul was in when he said, I came to you in weakness. And even in 2 Corinthians 10.10, if you don't write notes, 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul says that the Corinthians said that his letters that he wrote are weighty. They're strong. He's a good writer. But in appearance, his appearance is unimpressive. He looked weak, in other words. And in his speech, it's contemptible, meaning whatever he talked about was worthless. So Paul was weak. And as Sister Wendy talked about how nervous she was, that she wasn't bold, perfect, right? Perfect. She's in good company. She was in the, I mean, when I think about that, Moses comes to mind. Remember when Moses was called in Exodus chapter 3? He goes, I, 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 I'm not eloquent of speech. He might have had a, even a stuttering problem. He had an excuse. I can't do this, God. Well, you got to find somebody else. How about when Isaiah, in chapter, Isaiah chapter 6 was called? Uh, are you serious? I'm a man of unclean lips, right? I'm a sinner. I don't live, I, I'm, I'm a sinner now that I encounter you, Lord. 
How about Jeremiah, where God said, I formed you in your mama's womb before yeah, even time began, before you were born to be a prophet for me. And what was Jeremiah's response? I'm too young. Can't you find someone more seasoned? So Wendy was in a good place where God could use him. So Paul, I believe God had Paul and orchestrated all the events to have Paul exactly where God needed him to be weak, right? Acts, eight, Acts 18, I'm going to read Acts 18, which chronicles his time in Corinth on, on that second missionary journey. Acts 18, 9 says this, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, the Lord visits Paul in a vision, do not be afraid any longer. Paul was fearful, he was scared, he was weak, he was beaten up emotionally, mentally, physically. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Look what the Lord says, verse 10. For I am with you, Paul. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. God had chosen many of the Corinthians to be saints. And he settled there a year and six months. He obeyed, although he was in this battered state. This week, he says, he took God seriously. And obeyed, and he was there for 18 months. Look, what did he do for 18 months? Teaching the word of God among them. This is what Paul was doing. He, he was committed to preaching the word. And so back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he goes, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. My message and my preaching. The Bible says in Acts 18 that he was teaching the word of God. And right here, I want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 here. I'm going to read some of this for us. And, Tim, and I believe Paul is giving his mindset to Timothy. Right here in 2 Timothy 4, Paul's about to die. His ministry is coming to an end, but he knew he needed faithful men to carry on the, the, the torch. He was passing it on to Timothy and saying, look, and he's exhorting him in, in Timothy 4. I believe this is the stuff that the Lord taught him during that time in Corinth, perhaps, and he's imparting it to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 1 says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He's, he's appealing to God, uh, 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 to Timothy, to look to God. God will judge you. Be faithful, Timothy. Forget about the church in Ephesus where Timothy was. Forget about them. You have a lot of opposition, but guess what? God is with you, and not only that, he's going to judge you. Take him seriously. So when Paul says at a 1 at a Corinthians that he was with them in, in weakness and much fear, and trembling, I don't think he was afraid of the Corinthians necessarily. I think his fear and trembling was before God. And this is what he's trying to convey to young Timothy here. Hey, look, God is the one that's going to judge you. Be faithful to him. And what is he to be faithful? Verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. Rebuke. Correct, right? Exhort, encourage with great patience and instruction. Teach, teach, but preach the word. When it says in season and out of season, what that means is when it's popular to hear God's word preached, and when it's not, keep preaching the word, Timothy. And remember this, 
God is going to judge you. Not the, the, the church at Ephesus. God himself, Christ Jesus, is the one who's going to judge you. So I believe this, that God was really working in Paul's heart, in his weakness, as he orchestrated it for Paul to go under those extreme hardships. God had Paul exactly where he wanted him, where he was useful to him because he had nowhere else to turn. He had to turn to the Lord for strength. And the Lord said, visited him and said, I, will, I am with you. What else do we need to hear? The number one role, the primary role of the pastor is to teach and preach the Bible. Whether it's from the pulpit, whether it's in a class, whether it's in a small group, whether it's ministering biblical truth and biblical counseling, whatever it is, we're ministering the word of God. That is the primary role of the pastor. Remember what Jesus told Peter? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. That is the primary role. Not the exclusive role, but the primary role what a pastor does. Pastor Terry ministers the word while we sing. We're, we're singing. He makes sure that we are singing praise songs with truth in it. That's all. The pastor's primary role is to minister the word of God. And, and going back to 1 Corinthians 2, 4, he says that my preaching and my, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. What is that? What is that? Well, I'm going back to Timothy here. You'll get a slide up here. 2 Timothy 4, 3 says this. For the time will come, this is persuasive words. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want to hear about theology. They don't want to hear about the word of God preached. They don't want to hear about Christ and the Holy Spirit. They don't want to hear about these things. Well, what did they want to hear, Paul? but wanting to have their ears tickled. Ears tickled. This is information on how to live life now, how to improve your marriage today, how to raise your kids, and how to have a good relationship with people at work, how to be most productive in your life today. These are the things that were tickling the ears of the people back then, here in this case of Ephesus and 2 Timothy, and also in Corinth. People want to know how to do life. And let me just warn us, even non-believers want that too, right? Don't non-believers want to have a good marriage? Don't non-believers want to have a good relationship with their kids? Don't non-believers want to have a good image with other people? Of course. So what will they do? Going back to 2 Timothy here. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They'll start searching, hunting for people that will whet their appetite, that will feed, up, feed their appetite. My concern during this coronavirus time is this. Online, there's, there's a phenomenal resources out there. So, so many good things. There's so many, and also bad things and everything in the middle. We could become so consumeristic, we start clipping, clicking around. This, oh, I want to listen to this message. I want to listen to this type of message. This is what kind of appeals to me. We don't want to be consumers, brothers and sisters. Church family, we do not want to be consumers where we flip around on the internet like it's the television station finding the next best thing to watch. We don't want to be like that. Verse 4 in 2 Timothy 
And what's going to happen if you do that? And will turn away their ears from the truth, from sound doctrine, the teaching of the scriptures, and will turn aside to myths. That is what I'm concerned about as a pastor. We do not want to be, become people who turn away from the scriptures. And we're appealing to the wisdom of the world. Even if it's veneer of the Christianity and Christianese language. The essence of why we study the scriptures is to know Christ more. The more you love him, the more you obey him. Look what happened to Wendy. She didn't necessarily want to do it, but Christ dominates the sister, and she goes, I need to tell Uncle George about the gospel message because out of Matthew 28, God, Jesus says, go out and make disciples. I need to obey, right? There's no technique, no strategy. It's like I need to simply need to deliver the gospel message and pray like mad that God will save Pastor, uh, Uncle George. This is what will make a pastor strong in the world's eyes when we start preaching worldly wisdom because then the world will applaud us. Go, man, that's brilliant. Man, that's good. Thank you for teaching us that philosophy. Thank you for fitting in Christian principles to have a better life. I remember in my old life, People were, non-Christians were constantly asking, what does the Bible have to say about this? And in this truth, so it helps them. I don't know if it helped them come to Christ, right? We, we cannot become people like that. Because if the, the preacher is preaching that sort of a message, I'm offering up sand. I'm offering up sand where lives are being built on sand. Our homes are, like as Jesus talked about, we have the house built on the rock and the sand, and I'm offering up sand, From the pulpit, power needs to be radiated out of the pulpit. And how does that happen? When you simply preach the word. Otherwise, when we preach the wisdom of the world, it yields no transformative power. We just, we just learn how to live. Or we become unconverted Marthas who just love doing things, who found their identity in doing things. We want to be Mary who sit at the feet of Christ and adore him so much. Then we obey him through it. This is what, we're, this is what the heart of the pastor is, to introduce people to Christ in, in, in such an irresistible way where the Lord opens up the eyes and we love Christ so much. To elevate our view for God. This is what it's about. Verse 4, back to 1 Corinthians 2, 4. Non-persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power. This is what where the power is. When we're weak, the Spirit of God works. When we're weak, the Spirit of God works. When we go to things of the world, we're basically denying the Spirit's work and we're going to offer up the world's wisdom. We're off of God's wisdom, and the Spirit of God does His work. I told you I like to study uh, history, and I like studying um, people who walked my path, so to speak, prior. And uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was probably the preeminent preacher in England in the 1800s, if not the world. At the time, he was called the Prince of Preachers, right? The Prince of Preachers. And this is what Ian Murray says about him, the true 
explanation of Spurgeon's ministry then is to be found in the person and power of the Holy Spirit. He himself, deeply conscious of this, it was not men's admiration he wanted, but he was jealous that they stand in awe of God. God has come unto us not to exalt us, but to exalt himself. I remember just hearing uh, stories about uh, Charles Hans Spurgeon when he would walk up to the pulpit. I think there was about 5,000 people in his congregation in London, and he'd walk up and he'd just be praying, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Because he knew, as talented as Charles Hans Spurgeon was, that nothing's going to happen apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 here, back to Corinthians so that your faith will not rest on the wisdom of man. Sand. We don't want our lives built on sand. No building on sand. But on the power of God. How about that? Therefore we preach God's word. The life that is built on the word of God is the life that's built on the rock, on solid ground. That's what we're looking for. We don't want to build sandcastles here. We want to build homes, our lives built on the rock. And so the preacher will preach God's wisdom. Verse 6 and 7 talks about some of the nature of God's wisdom. The God's uh, wisdom is for Christians. It isn't for non-believers. We're not trying to attract a crowd. We're trying to speak and preach to the elect. The God's wisdom is eternal. It's, the Bible says not of this age uh, because this age is passing away. It's just eternal. These truths are going to be forever about who the Lord is. And the tr- God's wisdom was kept secret. Now it's revealed to us through the scriptures. And also, it's timeless. I mean, we have different eras in our history of our, of our world. Right? We have A.D., the year of our Lord, and we have B.C., before Christ. I came up with this one, BT, before time, right? Before time began, Christ had a plan. He had the wisdom of God was to save us. Now, so the preacher, we spent some time talking about the preacher. is supposed to be weak and in fear and trembling of the Lord. But in order not to get discouraged as a preacher or someone like Wendy or you who's actively sharing the gospel, We need to understand the problem of man. Otherwise, we could get discouraged. So point number two, the problem of man is spiritual darkness. Type that into your apps or write that down on your notes. Spiritual darkness. Verse 8 says this, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. None of the rulers understood it. Who comes to my mind when I think of the rulers of the time? I think of Caiaphas, the high priest. I think of uh, Pilate, the governor in Judea. I think of King Herod. And perhaps any of these men could have stopped it, but they were darkened. They couldn't help it. Spiritual darkness leads to dark deeds. These men did not understand. So they crucified the Lord of glory. Can you imagine that? The Lord of glory is the shiniest, the brightest light, life that ever walked the earth. They decided to extinguish on the cross. Why? Because they simply did not understand. And I think verse 9 takes it to another level. Not only they did not understand, they could not understand. It was impossible for them to understand. Let's read verse 9. But just as it is written, I love it. Paul's a true preacher. He, he backs up his claims with the scriptures, right? But just as it is written, 
things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, meaning there's, we cannot comprehend the truth of the gospel. It's just in our natural senses. We can't see it here on our own. He, and then Paul takes it another step forward, which he found this, this, these quotes or these concepts from Isaiah 64, 4, and which have not entered the heart of man, meaning it's even un, impossible to even conceive of the heart of man, the, the thought life of a person. I can't even imagine the gospel message on my own, right? Verse 14 of Corinthians, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. But our natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness and it's moronic to them. And he, what? What does it say? What does that say? And he cannot, not would not, but cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They've been judged. I'm going to, 2 Corinthians, I'm going to, I'm going to skip I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Bible says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, to the unsaved. And why, why is that? In whose case? The God of this world, Satan. Satan is a great deceiver. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Why? So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're blinded. They're, they're incapable of seeing. So as you share the gospel message, let's understand, this is a miracle that you're trying to see happen. Let me give you an illustration. World Health Organization says that there's 39, a lot, 39 million, that's a lot of people, blind people globally. 39 million people who cannot see in the world. And it truly will take a miracle to have them see. Whether they're born with this condition or they lost their eyesight, somehow, it will take a miracle for them to see. But a greater, even greater disease is spiritual blindness. And it will take even a greater miracle to have them see. Right? And so... This is where we appeal now to the Lord's provisions. Point number three, the provision of God. Write this down now, the work of the Spirit. Just like our, our title of our sermon, the work of the Spirit. How does God actually save sinners, spiritually darkened people? How does God actually do it? Well, it's a three-phase process. Right? I, 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 I put some space for you to take some notes. The work of the Holy Spirit is a three-phase process. Phase number one, found out of verse 10 and 11, is revelation. Write that down, revelation. What is revelation? The Spirit's work in imparting truth about God. The Spirit gives truth. Here, and before we get there, I want to, before we get to how the Spirit does it, I want to Break up revelation in two categories. There's general revelation and special revelation. So you'd be, Pastor, what is general revelation? Anything that you could observe in the natural order, in, the, in creation, which speaks about God. Let me take you to Romans 1.20. This, this is a very concise verse on that. This is available to all people, not even also to non-Christians. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power 
in divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So basically, through created things, it testifies about who God is. I remember my dad saying this to me when I was trying to evangelize him for those uh, several years before he came to Christ. You know, he grew up in the countryside, beautiful area, mountains, waterfalls, oceans, trees. He has it all. And he, be, he spent his life vocationally as a gardener, so he would see nature constantly face-to-face. And he said, Haruki, I, I see nature. And it, it's just perfect. Someone had to have made it, right? So this is what Paul's saying here, that somebody made creation and, and nature, and that's God. And, and in essence, what we're able to surmise from that is this. There is a God, and I'm not him, right? That's what this is about. There is a God, and I'm not him. And this is what general revelation is about. But Romans 1.20 says, so they are without excuse. General revelation is inadequate for someone to come to a saving relationship with God. All it does is condemn us. All it does prove that we knew ahead of time that God existed, right? So when we do get judged, you can't say, oh, God, I never knew you existed. Of course we knew. All we have to do is just experience the natural order, natural creation. So that's general revelation. So the Spirit gives us special revelation. And special revelation is needed in order to come to a saving relationship with Christ. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 2 again, verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, this revelation. God them, what's them? God's wisdom. Who's us? That's people like men like Paul, the apostles, the prophets, those who wrote the scriptures. And God progressively unfolded his revelation to these biblical authors. And how did he do it? You know, and, 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 and I could sum it up in Hebrews 1. I'm going to just read this for us. Hebrews 1 says this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, that's revelation given to the fathers and the prophets, in these last days, this is a time since Christ came, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So what is this special revelation ultimately culminating? Christ the gospel. Paul says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's Christ and the message of the gospel. This is the revelation. This is that special revelation which we need. Romans 10, 17 says that you need to hear the word for you to be saved. Faith comes from hearing the word. So that's the Spirit's work. Phase one, revelation. He has given revelation to man through these prophets and apostles. Phase number two, the work of the Spirit is inspiration. Inspiration, write that down, inspiration. What is inspiration? The Spirit's work in empowering men to communicate God's revelation. The Spirit's work in empowering men to communicate God's revelation. Verse 12 of Corinthians says this, Chapter 2, 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. God's freely given revelation to these men, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts, spiritual concepts, spiritual truth with spiritual words. God has inspired certain people to write the scriptures. God gave Paul, specifically, he's the author of Corinthians, the truths, and God moved them, inspired him to write the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, the, the word of God, all the scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. God breathed these things through these men and used men to write these scriptures into the Bible. 2 Peter 1.21 says, God, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So how does this work? God inspired certain men to write the Bible, right? And that type of inspiration is over. Meaning there's no new revelation. The scriptures is set. Revelation 22 at the end of the Bible says you're not to add or subtract from the Bible. Otherwise you, you will be cursed. Things such as like the Book of Mormon is a cursed book. Is, is a doctrine of demons. We're not to listen to that. I mean that's an easy one. When you add another book to say this is scripture. When popes could say hey I speak for God. That doesn't exist anymore. The scriptures is set. The Bible is the only reliable source for special revelation from God. The Bible. That's why we preach the Bible. But the Holy Spirit inspires people to preach, to share. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher from England as well, from the 1900s, he talked about how preaching is like logic on fire. And what did he mean by this? He says there's, there's light and heat. And he said you need both because light does not make an impact on it. All it is is head knowledge, just information, just random facts. It can't just be about random facts that's plugged into our minds. But also it can't just be heat where it just warms up our emotions or we're maybe stirred up for a moment and then the heat goes away. You need both to have lasting effect. Light and heat, logic on fire, truth on fire. And he talks about how what preaching is is, is theology coming through a man who's on fire for Christ. God still inspires men to communicate the revelation that's given through the scriptures, through preachers and others. Look at what happened to Wendy Lou. In, in, in Wendy Lou's own style and manner, she shared the gospel, the revelation of God, the wisdom of God to Uncle George in the Wendy Lou style. She didn't share it like how I would or how Pastor Paul would. She did it in her own way, and the Holy Spirit inspired her, helped her overcome your fears, gave her courage and boldness to say, and, and the unction, that, as Lloyd-Jones will talk about, the unction from the Holy Spirit to impart the word of the gospel, the word of Christ to Uncle George. 
That was a great illustration, thank you, Wendy, of how the Spirit of God works. Even going against things that perhaps it wouldn't be in our nature to do. But the Spirit of God moved her to do that. And this goes on to phase three now. Write this in your notes here. Phase one is revelation, the work of Christ, a work of the Spirit. Revelation, phase one. Phase two is inspiration. Now, phase three is illumination. Illumination. What is illumination, Pastor Rocky? Illumination is the Spirit's work that enlightens believers to understand God's revelation. It's like that proverbial light bulb, ding, I get it, right? I get it. And so let's look at verse 15 and 16. But he who is spiritual, these are Christians, appraises or judges all things, meaning Christians are able to discern what's true and what's not because the Spirit of God has illuminated our minds to understand the Scriptures and also to interpret the times. This is important that we understand this, that Yes, we need to go under uh, proper interpretive hermeneutics to uh, understand the scriptures, but it takes more than just study and academics. As Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, the Bible cannot be understood simply by study or talent. You must count only on the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is what Martin Luther says. Psalms 119.18 says this, Open my eyes. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Right? Open my eyes. Spiritual vision. There it is again. Let's see what happened to Uncle George. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4 again. We talked about how Satan has blinded the eyes of those who are perishing. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves. Wendy didn't preach herself. She didn't preach any, uh, uh, some kind of a, uh, uplifting message at that moment. Time was eminent. So she spoke. What did she do? But Christ Jesus as Lord. She goes, trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Wendy offered herself to George to help him, to serve him, Right? But look at look what happened to Uncle George, verse six. For God, who said, "Light shall shine out of darkness," is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, the same God of the Genesis one who says, "Let there be light," and boom, there's light needs to do the same creative miracle in our hearts. In Uncle George to go, boom, I see what you're saying, Wendy. I need Christ, and he's my God, and he died for my sins. And if I give my life to him and trust in his work, I will be saved. Boom. So what we're asking for, as you share the gospel with others, that God Will you illuminate? Will you open this man or woman or child's eyes as you're ministering to your own family and you see hardness of heart? This is what you're praying. Spirit of God, open their eyes either to become a Christian or to see that this is, they're in sin. They need to repent. 
That's what Wendy was able to experience unfold. And that peace that Wendy talked about in Uncle George's eyes is supernatural. I'm about to die. I have cancer. I'm in hospice care, but I got peace all of a sudden. That's the work of the Spirit. Illuminated eyes. I could see into Uncle George's heart, basically, is what Wendy was saying. Application here. I just want to just say this much uh, for our church family. We will have. We will be united. We will be united when the Spirit of God dominates us and gives us the mind of Christ. Because we'll have one mind, one purpose. This will unify us so tight. So we're sharing testimony like Wendy did. That this just will be a natural thing. Hey, guess what? I got to share with my coworker today. Yeah, they rejected, but you know what? I'll be praying for her. Hey, guess what? I got to talk to this person jogging down the street. Hey, hey, guess what? I shared Christ. This should be a normal conversation that's taking place in our, all our uh, fellowship groups that's taking place. Guess what? Guess what? So here's a word of encouragement. Let's know our role. Our role is simply to deliver the gospel, to share the gospel. We're like the waiter that brings the master chef's creation and we just serve it up to the customer, right? That's what we are. We're just simple waiters that we get the food and deliver it. God is the one that needs to open blind eyes to see. I can't think of a more practical truth than this. Because as the Great Commission says to do, our Lord charges us to go make disciples. Evangelism is one of them. And even edifying, uh, sinning believers is also part of that. So when we know that we're called to give the wisdom of God and not settle for sand, the wisdom of the world, and when we do, we pray and ask the Spirit of God to do His work to bring sinners to salvation or sinning believers to restoration amen isn't what else do we want to know than that let's pray father i thank you for this word i thank you how good you are i thank you how you're able to teach us through your word lord father god i thank you for wendy's faithfulness to be an example to all of us and i thank you that you're gracious to george right now and that he is worshiping you we believe and trust that he's worshiping you and his eyes are wide open, staring at the Lord of glory. You are the Lord of glory, Lord. So I thank you for this. Father, I, I pray, Lord, that our church family, that there will be revival. Will you, your work of the Spirit, come down upon us and light us on fire for you, Lord? And will you, Lord, use us to light one another on fire for you? Then we light the San Gabriel Valley on fire for you, Lord. Will you do this? Help us to be faithful in ministering the word and help us to trust you to do your work. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.